I pray that you will join me right now in the book of Acts, chapter number 5. We're starting a new chapter this morning. Um, We took a week break uh, while we were in uh, Easter mode last week, which is one of the few times we take a break from uh, the study that we're in, but that is definitely the high point of our year in our preaching and teaching. So uh, that was was last week. So two weeks ago, we were finishing up Acts chapter 4. Real quick, I just want to make a couple of announcements uh, that kind of already been made. Um, Come this Wednesday, if you can, we will be having corporate prayer in the fellowship hall, the adults. Teens will be in their normal spot. Children will be in their normal spot. Uh, But this Wednesday, um, I've already started a list of things that we need to be praying about corporately. Uh, And um, one of those, I've got to shorten the list. Let's put it that way. We'll have to weed out some things. Can't go in there and say, hey, Pray about these six things, like really pray about six things. We'll probably got to whittle it down to maybe three to four things, hopefully. Uh, but we really want to address those corporately. Uh, I would imagine that the women's conference this Friday and Saturday will be one of those slots. We need to pray over that. I know they have been, but uh, we don't just need, like all these seats going to be filled with women um, next Friday and Saturday, this coming Friday and Saturday. And we want the Lord to truly show them and to inspire them to delight in Him through His Word and show them how to do that and to meet with them. And so a lot of preparation, but prayers keep. Prayer is the number one preparation of it all. And we want to take part in that. So come to that Wednesday. The other is just a little thing in your bulletin. You don't have to look again. But if you noticed on Annie Armstrong, uh, we didn't finish that at Easter. We usually keep collecting a couple of more weeks. And here's the only reason I'm throwing that out. I I saw 18,300 and something. That's great. You know where my mind goes. 18,366 or something. That's wonderful. Boy, we're really close to 20, right? What would it take for us to just get over the hump of 20? It might require you to give another 20. Say, I already gave. Maybe you want to give another $20 or another $50 or $100. Or what would the Lord have us do? So we're not quite yet done with that. So don't just put that in the back. And maybe, I can't say for sure, maybe we want to spend some time praying this Wednesday. Now, Lord, after this collection all around the country, Lord, you use it. Uh, to further your kingdom in North America. So there will be plenty to pray, and we'll want to get right into it Wednesday night. So I hope hope that you'll join us. If the Lord leads you to give, uh, then do that as well to the Annie Armstrong uh, missions offering. Acts chapter 5, we'll read the first 11 verses in just a moment. So here's where we were. It was a brand new church. It's the church. The Holy Spirit has come and filled uh, the believers in the city of Jerusalem. It's all Jewish at this point. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we keep getting these report cards from the author, Luke. Luke tells us at the start there was 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came. We kind of look at that. That's when the church was born. And then Peter preached on that day of Pentecost at that feast, and 3,000 more got saved on that day. So, well, we're up to 3,120, give or take, probably a little more than that. That was a round number that was given. And then by the beginning of chapter 4, because of another sermon preached in the temple concerning the healing of a lame man, drew a large crowd. Peter was preaching there, and all of a sudden by the end of that, we got the churches up to 5,000 males. 120, 3,000 total, 5,000 males. We're probably looking at a church that's probably up to like 20,000 people now. But it's adding to daily, and just a lot of tremendous momentum is going. Then Satan begins to attack. His first effort was to attack from without side, and the threat of persecution came, and it's coming. Persecution is coming. 
the apostles were told very clearly we don't, that by the Jewish authorities, the Jewish religious leaders who hated Jesus and put him to death, no more teaching, preaching, talking about the name of Jesus or you're going to pay for it. We're going to punish you. Well, that attack by Satan from the outside didn't work. All it did was drive the church to pray. And their prayers were basically along this line. Lord, we pray that you'll give more power and that you'll give us even more boldness to keep on preaching about Jesus. To not listen to them, but to listen to you. And sure enough, that's what happened. And so God's blessing. Everything is positive other than this looming storm of the coming persecution. So just all this positive momentum. So two weeks ago, we had another report card. And it went along this line. There was a little phrase, and it kind of set the tone for that sermon two weeks ago. God was pouring out great grace on the whole Jerusalem church. Just pouring out great grace. And we pointed out three ways that that grace manifested itself. Number one, all I mean, think of that. A church all around this city that is just growing, and they were unified. There was no bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. I mean, it doesn't mean they had the same opinions on everything, but in their core beliefs, in their heart, their heart of hearts, they had great unity, and that was God's gift to them. Very valuable, the unity. Secondly, we know that they had tremendously powerful preaching because the apostles were not just indwelt by the Holy Spirit like all believers. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were given these powerful firsthand, firsthand experiences and testimonies that Jesus is alive. Like only they could have given. And the Lord's bringing in more people as a result of this powerful preaching. But there was this other unique aspect of the grace of God that was poured out on the Jerusalem church. In that he gave all of the people a heart and a mind like his and the result was they were very generous, very generous to each other. Their attitude was such that I believe there were two main results of that outpouring of this heart and mind like Christ. They really saw each other in the city that were born again as true eternal family. True brothers and sisters more so than our blood relatives, brothers and sisters. Like these are going to be brothers. Like this is our spiritual family. Family. They really adopted each other with that mindset. And they saw themselves like as stewards. We're stewards. Everything that God has given us, we are a steward of what the Lord has given. And so the result was, at that point, at the end of chapter 4, there was not a single needy person in all of the church in Jerusalem. At that point, there's going to be needy. And we talked about some things that are going to happen. The persecution and a famine and other things. But at this point, there was not a needy person because two things... The believers shared. Hey, if it's mine and you need it, it's yours. Just use it. We'll just share it. But the other thing was, as needs arose, the need didn't last because people who had houses and lands went and sold the houses and lands and just brought the money and the proceeds and gave it to the apostles to use where the need was. And so there was a great grace upon the early church. In fact, that last thing, that selling property and lands... Our author, Luke, gives us two examples of people that did that. One is a positive. That's where we finished two weeks ago with Barnabas. He had some property. He sold it, brought the proceeds, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so you see all these positive things are happening. Satan tried to attack through persecution. Didn't work. But he's not done. And so today, notice the first word of chapter 5. Satan's going to attack again. And this time he's going to try to do it from the inside. And this one is his most popular method. Satan likes, yes, he likes to attack the church from the outside. But probably more often his attacks come from within. 
the very church. And now we have kind of our first dark chapter that's coming in on the church. Verse number one, would you read with me through verse 11? But, so all these wonderful things, great grace, unity, power, generosity, loving each other, giving, awesome. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So just the verses right above that, Barnabas sold some property and gave all the proceeds. Now we have another example, different though. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, so remember that, took that away, she knows full well. This is not a case of she doesn't know what's going on in the checkbook. I don't know what he does. You know, he handles the money. Nope, that's not it at all. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's what we don't know. There's a couple things we don't know. And there's quite a few things we don't know, but I want to point out two at the beginning. How much did the land sell for? We don't know. We don't know. Was this land sold for the equivalent in our day, $30,000? Was it $30,000? Was it $100,000? Was this a half million dollar piece of property that they sold? We don't know. The second thing we don't know are these percentages. What percent did he keep back for himself and what percent did he give to the Lord? Let's say it was a nice round figure, like a hundred land sold for $100,000. Did they keep back $15,000, just $15,000, and give $85,000 to the church? Wow, that would be awesome. Or did they give $62,000 to the church and keep back $38,000? What were the denominators? We don't know. How much did it sell for? What are these percent? All we have is this general description, verses 1 and 2. And I know most of you have heard this account before. If you haven't, I hope your mind is already wondering something about verses 1 and 2. Because it's like, man, this seems to be written in a negative tone. What's the problem in verse 1 and 2? Look at verse 3. So here he comes. He sold the land. Keeps back part. She knows all about it. Gives a portion of the proceeds. But Peter, so here he lays it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said... Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? How does Peter know this? Well, the Holy Spirit is telling Peter, uh uh-oh, we got sin. And so Peter's question, Ananias, why did you do this? And it isn't as simple, boy, I wonder why Satan filled his heart. No, what he's saying is, Why did you let Satan fill your heart with his lie and carry it out? Why did you do this? So what's the big deal? Verse 4, Peter asks him, While it remained unsold, Ananias, let's rewind. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was yours. The land was yours. Go back in your mind. Before you sold, it was yours. And after it was sold, now there's no land, but there's money. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? It was at your disposal. So his question, why is it that you have contrived? So verse 3, Satan has put it into his heart, but now that just started it. You've ultimately contrived. Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? 
You've not lied to man, but to God. The idea, again, we can hear that. I'm not, I'm not harming the Scriptures by saying, you've not lied merely or simply or just to mankind. You've lied to God. Why did you do this? Yes, he put that thought, but well, you ran with it, and you conjured up and contrived this whole plan. Why did you do that? He's saying, maybe, what's the big deal? Well, verse 5 is the big deal. When Ananias heard these words, he doesn't even answer. He fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. I mean, the word just started spreading. Oh, my word. Did you hear what? What was going on? People are arriving. Here comes more. Others are probably giving their money. Like, are you giving all? <laughs> you heard what happened? Like, what? What happened? Ananias? I don't know him. Well, he's dead. Verse 6. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Off they go. Wrapping him up. Jews bury him the same day that you die. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, and Again, there's, there's more. We'll get into this in a little bit. There's some hidden thing, I think, here. And, and I don't want to say it right now. But Peter says to her, so the, the word said, we're going to point out something there. It seems like she probably started a conversation the way that word has been translated. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Again, let's just use our figure. Made up, totally. They kept back 15000 They brought 85000 he brings that and presents it. He ends up dying. Here she comes three hours later. Sapphira, question. Did you sell the land for 85000 And she said, yes, for so much. Did you sell the land for so much? And he gave the, the figure of what was brought. Is that how much you sold the land for? Yes, yes, for that much. That's how much we sold it for. Absolutely. Where's Ananias? See, where is he? But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, and again, he's still getting supernatural knowledge. They're not inside yet. Peter's talking to her. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. He knows that they're coming. That's it. See, I told you. There they are. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And now we have this other general statement. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So the church has this great fear, and even outsiders who are just Jewish, not Christians, all of a sudden word is spreading among them. Hey, you know that Peter fellow preaches down the temple? Yeah, I see him sometimes. Don't ever lie to that guy. Better not lie to that guy. And so word is spreading and great fear has come upon the church. So there's lots of outlines on this passage. There's a, I, I, I've taught this before and I had a different outline. And you know what? As I looked at it this, this week, I thought, I don't want to outline it to death. I have two simple points. We're not breaking it up into verses. Nothing just really jumped out. Again, we could have got cute and alliterated and all that stuff. I'm just going to do Look at the whole passage one way, and then we're going to finish. So like three-fourths of the message is going to be this first point, and then the last 25% will be the second point, just really just drawing some conclusions. So we're going to kind of look at the whole thing very simply. 
under this heading. Notice in our first thought this morning, an act of deceitful hypocrisy. There's an act, so this is the kind of the whole scene, an act of deceit. You could say a costly act, an intentional act of deceitful hypocrisy. So Satan has attacked the church from the outside. Man, that didn't work. That just drove him to prayer. Here he's coming and he's attacking from the inside. Now that those of you who are taking notes, you got your pens working, keep them going on and jump right into this next thought because it's what we find here. And here's something we need to learn and we want to be careful about. There's lots of lessons in today's passage. Here's one. When pure religion is taking place, when pure, sincere, heartfelt, genuine religion is taking place, Satan often tries to interrupt that pure, sincere religion with counterfeits. So that's one of the things we need to notice right out of the gate. Pure, sincere, heartfelt, genuine religion. Man, we got this awesome report card. People are giving. They're unified. There's powerful preaching and teaching. Everything seems great. And then all of a sudden, Satan doesn't like it. So what does he do? He stirs up a counterfeit. And by the way, you say, Jeff, what do you mean, pure religion? I don't want you to go look for it. What I'm saying is Satan will do this. Just make sure it's not you. There could be pure praise and worship. I mean genuine praise and worship that's happening. And Satan inserts counterfeit praise and worship. There can be pure God-honoring, God-seeking prayers. And then Satan comes along in that corporate prayer meeting. And all of a sudden somebody starts using prayer to make a speech and to advance their own agenda. It's like... What in the world? Like We were talking to God and asking Him and praising Him and thanking Him, confessing our sins and asking for these things. And all of a sudden, it sounds like you've memorized a sermon that you want to use prayer to preach to. Like What happened? Genuine, sincere testimonies, just honoring God, praising God for what He's done. Can I have a word? Can I have a word? Yeah, share your testimony. And then all of a sudden, here comes somebody and like... They just hold, divert the whole thing, and it's like a little smattering of thanksgiving to God. But really, it's to frame themselves how great they are. I know y'all have never seen that, but I've seen those things a few times. Just a few. I taught in a Christian school for 21 years, been in hundreds of chapel services, seen many, many altar calls. And I would love to think that they were all genuine, but I'm afraid that there were times where genuine responses were taking place And by the end, it was a big show by the end again. Satan will often insert his counterfeits where there's genuine worship and religion taking place. So now I'm going to get some feedback from you guys two or three times today. Um, And the first one is not something you do out loud, but I want to get you honestly thinking. If you were here two weeks ago, we noted something about all this giving and the sharing and the selling of the property and donating all the, la- all, all the money. And we noted that this was not communism because people still own their private property. Notice in verse 4, Peter says, was the land not your own? You owned that. You didn't have to sell it. So we know that it was not communism, but also all the giving was purely voluntary. So this is important. If all the giving was just voluntary and people gave what they wanted, now I want you to look back with that framework. Look back at verses 1 and 2, and here's my question. Where is the sin? What is the exact sin? What is the nature? What was the action of sin committed in verses 1 and 2? Look at it again. 
don't go in ready to roast Ananias and Sapphira. Like, oh, yeah, we got Ananias and Sapphira today. I know about them. We're going to nail their hides. Don't, don't approach it that way. Honestly think, like, wait a minute. Just read it simply. Verse 1, a man, there was a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. They sold a piece of property, and he kept back some, and he gave some. Where's the sin? He, we're going to get to that. Remember that word. They have property. They sell it. Keep some. Give some. And if that's all there is, y'all should be thinking, well, we've done that. Where's the sin? So it's not real clear, so I'm going to propose at least one of these two things we're going to write down is happening. I believe both are happening. Number one, what is the exact sin? Perhaps, number one, Ananias directly lied. Or he used intentional, deceitful expression when he gave the gift while he's acting like everyone else who had given all. So either, let me say it again as you're writing, either he directly lied, so here he comes, here's all the money from the sale of our land. Or he intentionally uses a veiled expression to deceive people that in and of itself, again, this may be, but God knows the heart, it wasn't specifically a lie, but it was his goal to deceive. Could it have gone just as simply as this? Others are giving, and here, here he comes. They're giving all, and here he comes right in among them. And here's the money from the sale of our land. Trying to give that impression. So I'm quite confident one of those two things, either he straight up lied or he used language that he knew would make people think that he had given all. F.F. F. Bruce writes the following. He says, quote, Ananias, in the effort to gain a reputation, to gain a reputation for greater generosity than he had actually earned, tried to deceive the believing community. But in trying to deceive the community, he was really trying to deceive the, to deceive the Holy Spirit whose life-giving power had created the community. So, pretty confident he's trying to pull it off as if he's given all, but he didn't. Secondly, I believe this one too. This is just me. It's really, really simple. Write this down. It seems that perhaps they had promised God that they would give all of the proceeds of the sale of the land to the church to be used for the poor. But when it came down to it, after promising God they would do that, the amount of money was just too much to really let it all go to that. And so they listened to Satan who talked them into giving a lesser amount so they don't actually give all of the money to the church. Do you all see the difference between the two? Those are two different things. One, trying to act like those who have given all and deceive people. So there's, there's that. And then the other, Lord, we're going to give you all of this. But before they actually follow through, they end up withholding. And as a result, they've lied that way. Can I just say something real quick? There's a reason that you've heard me and Mike as well. That when we give these offerings, we invite you, go, like really pray, get, get aware of God's presence and say, should I give toward this? Lord, what would you have me give? Don't talk the Lord into your amount. Ask the Lord and then give that amount because sometimes Satan still works and he'll try to talk you down to a lesser 
amount. And no doubt he did the same with this group. Look at verse number 4. While it remained. So you see Peter's thinking. Ananias. Back when it was your property. Let's go back in time. It was your land. Nobody pressured you. Nobody expected you to sell the land. Why did you sell the land? Ananias, let's go back. After you sold the land and it is money. You have the money. That was yours. You know how I take that? Ananias, you didn't owe a mortgage on this. It's not like, hey, I had to hold back the 15000 because we still owed fifteen. No, it was yours. It was at your disposal. And that kind of tells me that when their commitment and vow to the Lord to give must have happened as the sale is already happening... And they get it, and it's like, Peter's like, it was still at your disposal. Nobody made you sell it then, and once it was liquidated into cash, nobody made you give it there. So here's this question. Why did you do this? Is this what happened, Ananias? Did you see everyone else that was giving all and how people who were blessed by that and inspired by that and just they start praising God for how God was using those people and, and you, you see all that thanksgiving and praise and you're like I want in on that I want a piece of that I want some of that and so you determine you're going to sell the land and even after you sold the land you even bowed to God you're going to give all of it but before you actually do the giving Satan has talked you into giving a lesser amount and so you kept back part and in the process you lied to us and you lied to God is that what happened So here's where I want to get your help. And again, you've heard me say, if this was a Wednesday night, we would take quite a while. I don't know that we'll need quite a while. Ananias and his wife Sapphira are guilty of several distinct sins. I want you to think. Think, can we put a lay, can we parcel them out? Can we untangle? Because there's not like just one sin that has happened here. Today is a message about sin. And if we're going to preach on sin, we don't just need to shotgun it. Let's like, can we like really see what exactly is the specific sins that took place in this scene? So I want you to be thinking right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, some of you have already come up with a couple of those. I want you to think. Can you put a name to the specific sins that have taken place in them? And I believe there's at least four. A couple of them you may say they're kind of the same. And it may be kind of 3A, 3, uh, 3B, maybe. I, I, I kind of see them as a little distinct. So I want to get your help for a moment. What is a distinct act of sin that this couple has committed? Lying. Pride. Greed. So you got three out of four. Let's go with the word deceit, and I'm going to give you a word that starts with letter H. It's where they're going to pretend and act like they're giving all. Hypocrisy. They were being hypocrites. Would you write those four things down? Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of four distinct sins. Pride. Did, did you hear it in the story? You say, where's the pride? They want to be praised for giving all. They want to be praised for giving all. Hey, we want to be in that who gave all group. We want everybody to know it. That's why we're going to, that is going to lead to the hypocrisy and the lying. The problem is we want to be praised for giving all, but we don't want to actually give all because, boy, we love our money. It's hard to let it go. And here they 
I believe, have vowed this money that is dedicated to God, and they're going to not end up giving all the money that was God's because they love their money, and they're going to hold back, and they are guilty of greed. But then as they bring it and present it, they do it in a deceptive way, which ends up being hypocrisy. But because they've vowed to God, we're going to give this to you, they've now, when they don't give it all to the Lord, they have now lied to God. Four distinct sins. Which ones of those four sins do we have an epidemic of in the United States? All of them. I mean, I know we've had a pandemic. We have an epidemic of pride in the United States. We have an epidemic of pride in Anderson County. We have an epidemic of greed in Anderson County. We have an epidemic of lying. The only one, and it's probably the case, I hope it's not the case, but hypocrisy. And we're going to kind of, again, we need to take just a moment and think about each one of these. Which one of the four is the original sin? Pride. Remember, Lucifer, he's not content to be exalted as he is. He wants a throne that rivals the throne of God. That's the first sin in all of creation. What's the first sin among mankind that was also included in pride? It was Eve who partook of the, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because if I were to eat that, she's told, I'll be like God. And so I want to take that. And so she has pride and Lucifer has pride. Write this down. Pride is the original sin. And guys, of all the ones that we're talking about, I dare say this is the one I can just with broad general strokes There may be an exception. There might be an exception to this one in the room. If it is, if there is an exception, you don't know it. You don't know it's you. But pride is our constant enemy. I think of all four of these, pride is our constant enemy. It's my constant enemy. It is the original sin. But it has a lot of forms. It has a lot of ways. Can you do a quick mental checklist? Would you just check yourself and be honest? Do you have a problem with bragging? Is bragging one of your issues? I mean, we're just like, yeah, you just kind of, oh, there they go again. This one's inside. Is there anything in you, in, in in your heart of hearts, where it's like, yeah, I do feel like I feel I'm better than certain kind of people? I do. There may be a group of people here this morning that you kind of feel better than them. Check your heart. Maybe you say, I don't necessarily feel better than other people, but I feel like I deserve better than what I have in life. Maybe you're here this morning, and your honest thought is, I deserve a better house, a better car. I deserve better health than what I... I deserve more respect. Not quite as obvious as bragging is this next one. Do you... Check yourself. Be honest. We might not even know when we do this one. Do you tend to draw attention to your noteworthy deeds? Do you tend to make sure, like just subtly, but you tend to work it in that people know about your accomplishments, your deeds, accolades? Do you ever perform tasks to be seen? Like, if I wait five minutes, so-and-so will see me do this. Do you feel above the lowly job? Is there a job that you're like, I don't do that. Somebody does that. And I know it needs done. And we're thankful for those people. (laughs) I don't do that. 
Do you see yourself as independent? You kind of live independent of God. You live independent of other people. Is this you? It pains you when another person, specifically certain other people, are recognized. And you're not. Or maybe they have a position. They got an opportunity. And you did it. And it just eats at you. Is this when you, you just crave recognition, crave the praise of others? I just, I just need them to adore me. Do you ever just refuse to yield to God? He's the authority, but I want to do things my way or the authorities that God has put over me. God's the authority. He's put these authorities, and I just resist them because I want to have my own way. Is there any inward gloating? Again, this is subtle, but any inward gloating that you had nothing to do with about the way you look, something about your physical makeup or your mental abilities, your social skills, your charm, your ability. You have a skill that does well in our society currently. Do you ever struggle Or just flat out refuse to admit that you're wrong. I know none of us in here have ever had that. It's just like it's clear as day. You're wrong this time or you have a portion of the wrong. But it's like, no, not going to give that up. I'm not going to give in to that. Or are you just like really slow? You will do it. You go kicking and screaming. But the main thing they hear is, yeah, but. I will admit that. But you, on the other hand, you have the far greater percentage. Aren't you glad we don't have any pride issues? A grace view. Ananias and Sapphira had great pride. They craved adoration. This is our natural enemy. Y'all have heard me say before, it is, and I know not all the guys here are into sports, but those of us who are, when we were daydreaming as little boys, we never daydreamed about setting the block, giving the block that frees up the guy to make the game-winning pass. Or the guy to make the game-winning catch. We don't see ourselves in basketball. Boy, I, in my dreams, I set an awesome screen for you to make that three-pointer and win. No, we are making the three-pointer. We crave it. Write this down. So pride is the original sin. Number two, I'm just going to throw this out for time's sake. God just straight up says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all evil that there ever is. Some evil is evil and it has nothing to do with greed and the love of money. But when our heart just loves money, we just love it, be careful. You're opening up yourself to a whole avenue of sin that if it goes unchecked, you very well may be committing those sins. Third, I ask you this morning. Y'all remember, we went through Matthew chapter 23. Who, what specific kind of people were Jesus' harshest words reserved for? The Pharisees and the scribes, he called them hypocrites. What what is hypocrisy? Let's take just a moment because this is one that there can be some misunderstanding. And so I'm going to borrow from Warren Wiersbe, if you would. Write this down, and then we'll talk about it briefly. Wiersbe writes, the first part, both parts are crucial. He says, we must not think that failure to reach our ideals is hypocrisy. He's so right on that. We don't need to think, oh, hypocrisy, that's failure to reach out. No, we must not think that failure to reach our ideals is hypocrisy. That's not hypocrisy. 
That's not being a hypocrite. That's being what? That's being a human being. Does that make sense? Here's our ideals. That's where we, how we want to live. And we ended up here. I'm a hypocrite. No, you're a human being. So what is hypocrisy? Wearsby writes, quote, Hypocrisy is deliberate deception. Trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. Trying to make people think we are more. It's, it's intentional. It's on purpose. So again, not picking on them, not, not picking on the unsaved, but there's some people who don't go to church because they have this mindset. People in churches, Christians, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. You know, all the churches are filled with hypocrites. I hope that's not true. I hope Graceview, Graceview does not have to be filled with hypocrites. But what they're meaning in their heart is, yeah, you Christians get together, you read your Bibles, you come up with the Bible says these things are wrong, and then I know that guy went out and did it. Uh, you know the Bible says that anger is wrong, and I saw that guy get angry the other day. The church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. No, the, the guy had a moment of weakness. He committed sin, and he has an issue. By God's grace, he needs to overcome that. Very, very different. And then we have lying. Isn't it nice just to sit and get information? This is good information. Pride, greed, hypocrisy. What's next? I like to learn. <laughs> what if we looked at this list and we were like, uh-oh, I've got issues. We know lying is one of the ten commandments. I'm one of the ten. But as you're flipping over to Proverbs 6, you want to go there, flip over there for a moment. Proverbs 6, not only is it number nine out of the Ten Commandments, God hates it there, but the writer of Proverbs ends up writing seven things that God hates. And there's something unusual about this list. He calls them abominations. Like, in other words, God despises these seven things. God, so, so as we get ready to read this, just know God despises and hates, but it's abominable. It's like these are abominations. They actually make God sick. You say, well, what, what makes God sick? Verse 6, verse 16. There, uh, no, let's write it down first. I need to give you the note. Lying is not only one of the Ten Commandments, but lying appears not once. But I thought this is so striking. It appears two times in a list of seven things that are called abominations, which God hates. Like two of the seven directly have to do with lying. As you're writing that, I'm reading verses 16 through 19, Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. So we ought to feel the weight of this. Well, I, I need to know. And we don't need to go, that's Old Testament. I live in grace. <laughs> don't you want to know what God hates? Verse 17. What does he hate? What's abominable? What makes him sick? What does he despise? Verse 17. Haughty eyes. Haughty, arrogant, proud looks. A lying tongue. And that one's broad in general. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. I read this list, and I'm thinking about Ananias and Sapphira. I'm like, man, they committed several of these. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Can I give you the 2020 version of that? God hates feet that make haste to run to evil. Without harming the text, can I say, God hates fingers 
that love to scroll and tap on evil. Hates it. Oh, I can't wait. What'd they do now? Oh, I won't love that. God hates it. And he hates the one who's devised these wicked plans. And hands that shed innocent blood. But verse 19, here it comes again. God hates a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. This one's an epidemic in, in, in Anderson County. Could it be that even some of us here this morning lie, but we do it so frequently, so easily, we don't even recognize it anymore, and it doesn't even bother our conscience hardly anymore. I mean, we've got to be caught in what we think of as, as a big lie before we feel bad about it, because we're just going through life and just firing off one lie after another. Is that present in the room this morning? Because if it is, these are the things that we need to be thinking about. N.T. Wright writes the following. He writes, so let it, let this, this is a unique take here, but he makes a great point. He says, Ananias didn't have to lie. He could, had he wished, have sold the property, kept back part of the money, and said, I choose to give this part. That's all he had to do. Why did you lie? That's what messed it all up. And then you had to deceive to cover your lie. Again, Ananias didn't have to lie. He could, could, had he wished, have sold the property, kept back part of the money, and said, I choose to give this part. Had he been embarrassed to do that... He could have simply refrained, refrained from selling the property in the first place. I don't want to go and just give part. They're all giving everything. Well, then don't sell it at all. Nobody's making you give. It's not a requirement. It's not like a condition to get into the church. You've got to sell all your stuff. Like just, then don't give any. All I want to do is give that. Well, then just give that. Don't go launching out and telling God you're going to give the whole thing. And don't be acting like you gave the whole thing. So I ask you this morning. God hates lying, hates it. Where are you tempted to lie? There's some folks, I don't, I don't, literally, I promise I have nobody in mind. There's some folks, you'd work in an environment where people seem to be getting ahead because they lie, and that's very tempting for you to lie. Don't. Maybe you just filed your taxes in the last month or two. Did you lie on them? I'll tell you, I had to scurry through a whole bag of receipts the other day to make sure that what I was getting ready. And I finally found my receipts. I got all my coverage. There were plenty more, but I just needed enough to cover something. I got them. I'm good. Do we lie on our taxes? Do we lie in our giving? Maybe this is the biggest one. Like when trouble comes and a lie will help me to escape from the trouble, man, that's when I let, let them fly. Or is this yours? I just like for other people to think highly of me, and so I kind of... As Mike said, I kind of exaggerate and embellish to make myself look good. Those are two very... One is I want to escape trouble and consequences, so I'll just lie. And the other is I want people to adore me and think better of me, so I'm going to paint myself better than I really am. Do we lie in our words? Do we lie in our spoken words, in our written words? I found this sort of funny but sad this week. I, I go into the text first, and then I'll go and check some sources... No joke, the last source I checked. Preaching on Ananias and Sapphira, lying in his commentary. I'll not name who he is. He's just very famous. He straight up plagiarized F.F. F. Bruce. 
I mean, straight up. I mean, it was like he might have changed a word or two. And I know he's done this throughout. It's like, dude, I know you read F.F. Bruce. You should be saying F.F. Bruce said this. By the way, I'm not talking about where we unintentionally didn't know. Full disclosure. So I have some notes on Acts from years past. And I know in that time period, I, I used a guy named Matthew Henry, who has these really thick books with really little words, and they're double-columned. And I poured over that, and he used like the King's English from 1611, it seems like. And I got some thoughts from there, and they've, they've affected and influenced my thinking. But that was a long time ago, and I did not note every time so-and-so, this person said that, and that person said that. And so, if... So Matthew Henry ends up finding its way in. I do not have time to read him again now. And the Lord knows I'm doing it by ignorance. And I'm not talking about when you've just been influenced by someone's teaching so much that you go out and their idea is now your idea and you've owned it. I'm talking about when you know full well. It's easy to do, easy to lie. A lot of people do it. Verse 5. Let's keep moving. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. Wait a minute. Who does that sound like? We've heard this story before. There's a person here that Ananias has promised God, this is dedicated for you, and he ends up keeping back part, and for his efforts, it cost his life. Well, that sounds like somebody from the Old Testament who kept back for himself what was dedicated to God and for his efforts, he ended up getting killed for it. Who am I thinking of? Think of somebody else. Who? Remember Jericho? We're going to march around first day. March around second day, six days. Seven days later, they marched on the seventh day, they march around the walls of Jericho seven times. And here the walls fall flat, and up goes Israel, and God gives Israel victory over this large city of Jericho. But in the process, somebody saw some nice stuff, but God had already said, none of the things that you end up getting are for yourself. Those are all dedicated to the Lord. But this fella saw some gold and some silver and some nice clothes, and while everybody else is over there killing the enemy, apparently he's over here scurrying and hiding some things under his tent. What's his name? Achan. F.F. Bruce, make sure I get his name in, writes the following. In both narratives, here and with Achan in the book of Joshua, in both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Because when the children of Israel leave Jericho, they don't know that they have sinned in the camp. They go to the little town of Ai, and little Ai ends up beating Israel after they defeated big Jericho. And the problem was, yeah, you got sin in the camp. So verse 5, verse 1 through 4, verse 1 and 2, we have this action. Verse 3 and 4, we got Peter questions him. And then we get down to verse 5 and he dies. And some folks have read this and they're like, they get really mad at Peter. Peter killed this guy. (laughs) Write it down. Peter did not kill Ananias or Sapphira. God judged Ananias and Sapphira. It was God, not Peter. And so the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him, and they're gone. As you're writing that, I'm moving on to verse 7 and 8. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. 
I don't know why I ever thought of this, and again, I'm not saying this is exactly the case, but it kind of occurred to me, like I've often thought, where, why was, what was she doing for three hours? Was she coming fashionably late, right? Like heading to the Kentucky Derby or something, got her big hat, and hoping everybody would come up, oh, Sapphira is so great, thank you so much, and nobody's doing that. I don't know. You know what I'm kind of leaning toward these days? It's, I think she's like, he should be home. I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm just, y'all know that I do that. I hope the Lord will always show you the difference between what the text actually says and when Jeff inserts his stupid ideas. Okay? This is one of those. He should be here. So about three hours later, here she comes down. Look, if you would, at verse number 8. Because Peter's going to ask her something, and I think it's pretty clear. What if she's not in on the deception? Or what if she was in on the deception, but... She has repented or is ready to repent. We're going to give her a chance to choose her words very, very carefully. And so he's going to end up asking her and using the same denomination of the amount of money that Ananias brought. But look at verse 8. And Peter said to her. The ESV uses the word said. You know that word said has been translated other ways as responded, answered her. So again, reading between the lines, maybe it went something like this. Here she comes in and conversation stopped. People are looking, there's somberness, she's kind of picking up something odd, and she asks. Again, I'm reading between the lines, I don't know if this is the case, but hey, have y'all seen Ananias? Has he been by here? And Peter answers her, he has, okay. Did he bring something? He did. And I need to ask you about that. Tell me. Whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And again, forgive me for reading between the lines too much. I'm thinking she answered quickly. Because had she stopped and felt the weight of that question, would you not think to yourself, that's an odd question. Does he ask everybody that? Thank you. That is all of it, right? You did sell the land for 35000 right? Yes, sir. All right, you're free to go. Next. That is not what's happening. But he asked her. I wonder if anything thought, why is he asking me if we... But she did it. She just, yep, that's how much. That's how much we gave. That's how much we sold it for. And you feel the disappointment as Peter's thinking, No. And he's sorry for what's about to happen. I would remind you, as you look at verse number 9, Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? I would remind you of what happened back in verse 2, where the Bible said, With his wife's knowledge. So that's important because Sapphira is not saying, Yep, that's how much we sold it for. As far as I know, that's, that's what he told me. And it's not like she's clueless of, again, what's going on in the checkbook. No, she knows full well. And so here's what's important. Putting it all together, what we learn is that, write it down, they were not overtaken in a fault like Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says. Galatians says, brothers, brothers and sisters, if a brother be overtaken in a fault, then you who are spiritual restore such a person in the spirit of meekness. It's not like, oop, they tripped and fell into sin. That no doubt happened at the beginning. Satan tripped them up, but... There's time. We know by the time you sell land, you actually liquidate it, 
set your appointment, you go down and actually take the money and give it, there's time that elapses. And so it's not the case of they were simply just fell into sin. Wow, it happened so fast. We didn't know what we're doing. No, they were not overtaken in a fault. Instead, write it down, their sin was to intentionally settle and agree on a predetermined lie that they each had time to turn from. They had time to turn from this. I'm going to give you my opinion. Again, this is just my opinion. I believe, even at this late time, had Sapphira come clean and said, what what is your question? Yeah, Ananias brought $85,000. Is that how much the land sold for? No, I think the land sold for $100,000 is what I... Okay, okay, just checking. Where is he, by the way? Yeah, we got to talk to you about that. Or, you know, had she even said 85,000? Peter, I hate to tell you this. He's going to shoot me. We made that up. That's not all of it. We kept some. We just, you know, we're wanting to go do this and had this plan. And okay. I believe had she come clean, God would have showed mercy. But instead, she sticks to the lie. And Peter's response is, it's going to cost you your life in this situation. Quick thought out of verse 9 and then a thought out of verse 11. And we'll go to the last point this morning. Look at verse 9. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? So here's a husband and a wife, united. So if you're married, listen. Husbands and wives should be united in serving the Lord, in helping each other serve the Lord, helping each other grow in your relationship with the Lord. And I know we have different things going on in here. Some of you, you are the strong one. Some of you, like you may be even married to an unsaved person or a new Christian or a struggling Christian. By God's grace, I'm married to somebody that up to this date wouldn't put up with this, hey, I got this scheme, and we're going to lie, and we're going to make some money off of it. Are you in? Oh, of course I'm in. No. And I wouldn't do the same with her. You're blessed if you have a spouse that'd be like, no, we're not going to do that. They're not. They're each in on it. This is a problem. They've agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord. Write this down. This is important, very important. Write it down. To test means to see how far we can presume on the Holy Spirit's forbearance and His patience before He actually takes action. Could you imagine two people married together knowing they have known sin, living a lie, planning, conjuring up, contriving a whole scheme, lying and deceiving, being greedy, Because of their pride. And the whole time, this is what's happening. You guys, you know you're in sin. Yeah, but the money's worth it. And the prestige. We want both. We want to keep the money, but get the prestige that goes with giving all. This is a dangerous thing. Does everybody get this? Like... Christians should know the Holy Spirit's living inside. If you have known sin, known sin, and you're just like allowing known sin to continue, and maybe even you have a partner, and they're helping you commit the known sin, and you both say that you're Christians, but you're just continuing it as if God's going to just continue to let it slide, you're on very dangerous, dare I say foolish, 
ground. Very foolish. Because you're acting like the Holy Spirit's not a real person. Well, I wonder how far we'll get away with it until he actually takes action. They didn't get too far. Do you have anything in your life right now where you're just seeing how long you get to go until God takes some action? What's the old saying? What is it, Mike? You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. That's a good one. You can choose your sin, and then when the consequence... I'm talking about discipline of the Lord. I'm not talking about judgment. I'm talking about the discipline of the Lord among His people. We can choose our sin, but we don't get to choose the consequence. Don't ever lie to the Holy Spirit. Don't lie. Please don't just hear that and go, okay, note yourself, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. No, don't lie. But especially don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Literally, it's, it's this simple. Don't come when the Lord's convicting you and start saying, God, I'm sorry for that. When If your heart is such, and you just have to be honest, I think this is far better. God, I know this is sin, and I'm struggling with it. I'm, I kind of still like it. Please change my heart. I still kind of like it. I'm not ready to forsake it. I need you to change my heart. I think that'll get you a lot further down the road than, Lord, I'm really sorry. But in the back of your mind, you're already planning on doing it again. You're really not. God knows the difference. He knows your heart. Don't play games. Let me throw this in. This whole person of the Holy Spirit in a Christian is a dynamic This may not mean anything. I'm I'm talking about something right now that I I just can't give a lot of detail on. It struck me like how multiple times, multiple times recently, and by that I mean the last few weeks or months, where this principle has come into play. And here's the principle. There is a God. There is a God. And if you're ever put in a position where you know of something... And you're not sure the specifics. And you have somebody's testimony. And you're not sure is that actual or not. Is it real? And sometimes all you can do is just take their word for it. And that's what we do. We just like, I don't, God, I don't have all the information. So we're going to take their word for it. And if they're lying, there is a God. There is a God who will in the end make all things right. And God, you say, if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. So, Lord, this isn't my call. I'm not in the know. You know everything. And I find that comforting because often I'm ignorant of all the details. So it's just like, Lord, you know. We're putting it in your hands. Last thought in the first point comes out of verse 5 and 11. Look at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The ESV Study Bible writes the following. Please get it. Great fear. Now hear it. I probably should have made this your note here instead of my words. This is better, but anyway. Fear in response to a manifestation of God's presence involves both reverent awe and A healthy fear of God's displeasure and discipline. Hear that again. Fear in response to a manifestation of God's presence involves both reverent awe. And there's a lot of Christians that when they think of the fear of the Lord, it's only on that side. Oh, yes, fear of the Lord. 
we, we are aware of His presence and we have a reverence toward Him. That is the fear of the Lord. But it also includes, because it writes, it involves both reverent awe and a healthy fear of God's displeasure and discipline. America has lost the second part of that. We just don't have a healthy, godly fear of God's displeasure and God's discipline. So write it down. I don't think people lied to Peter for quite a while. I don't think any of the apostles were lied to for quite a while. And it's not just like, oh boy, we have all this respect for the apostles. No doubt that was there. But it was more than that. Write it down. There was a reverence for the Holy Spirit that permeated the church that was an admission. The Holy Spirit is real. He's a real person. He's actually indwelling us. He knows our every thought and He cares. And that fear of the displeasure of God and the discipline of God permeated the church. But in 2,000 years, we've got really smart. Have y'all noticed how in America and around the world... We have got really smart and we've figured out that everything over the last 2,000 years we've been taught is all not true. And we've got all new truth these days. And you know I'm saying that sarcastically. Let me share this with you. She's not in here. It wasn't her fault. It was probably 90-10 me. About 20 years ago, Deanna and I, we had a disagreement. Um... I know the, the vague idea. It was, it was a dominant one at that time. Again, pretty sure, I don't know the details. Pretty sure it was 90% me. Maybe a little her. But we were in a disagreement. And here's the weird part. We were at a couple's retreat. <laughs> in Brevard, North Carolina. We're at a couple's retreat in Brevard, North Carolina. With the people from the church where we taught in the Christian school. A whole bunch of them. Some of them possibly even here this morning. I don't remember the details. All I know is we go up on Thursday afternoon. We have a meal. We have Thursday night session. Everything's great. On Friday, we have a morning session, a midday session, and we have a Friday evening session. I don't remember the details, but somewhere in Friday, we end up having our disagreement. And it comes Friday night, and the man who was moderating and teaching the couple's retreat by the end of his Friday night, and again, Saturday was just going to be breakfast, one last little session, and we'd head on back down the mountain and come home. So Friday night was kind of the real culmination of everything, and they have this kind of thing that they do, and it's a fine thing they do, and they have a, I, I remember where I was sitting. Uh, it's in this fireplace room, and as I'm talking, some of you are like, I've been in that fireplace room. And on the last night, to signify that everything was right between us and God and right between us and our spouse and right between us and everybody else here. Would you just come by one by one and grab a stick out of this box and come throw that stick in the fire as an indication that things are right between you and God and other people. So the preacher had preached. Invitation had happened. Altar call and all that had happened. And now it's time to come one by one. And so those of you who are in the lodge, you staying in the lodge, would you come on by? And people got up and they came and they got their stick. And those of you that are in the cottages, would you come on? And they came in and they got their stick. And those of you who are up at the inn, upstairs in the inn, come and they got, and those of you in the downstairs of the inn, come by. And it kept going. And, and I'm telling you, pretty sure everybody in there got up and went and put a stick in the fire. Except me, Indiana. And I'm sitting about where Garrett or Tim are sitting there this morning. And this guy knows 
He's checked the room. So here's what he does. Okay, I'm pretty sure all the rooms have been called. So if you have not heard your room allocation, now is the time for you to come. Now's the time for you. Anyone else who has not, now is the time. And finally, Dr. Hayes just staring right at me. And finally, I had to just go. Bless his heart, he probably thought, they're just being stubborn. We weren't being stubborn. I was fearful. Because what we were doing, it's not like a little quick trip to the altar and pray a little prayer and everything's good. I would have loved to throw a stick in the fire. I know everybody there, probably not everybody. I'm sure other people were like, did you notice the Bartlett's haven't come forward? That's juicy. wonder what's happening over there. I hated it, but I was not about to go up there and throw a stick in that fire just so he'll stop staring at me and so other people will think, oh, everything's good with him. No. Don't lie. Lastly, let's draw some timeless principles. Number two, timeless principles. I ask you this morning, quick question, were Ananias and Sapphira saved? I lean a certain direction. So the question there is this, when they lied to the Holy Spirit, did they lie to the Holy Spirit in Peter? Did they lie to the Holy Spirit in the apostles? Did they lie to the Holy Spirit in the church? Or did they lie to the Holy Spirit in themselves? Or is it all of the above? I can't guarantee you, I'm going to give you my opinion. I believe Ananias and Sapphira were saved. And for that reason, they would be our brothers and sisters. I believe we'll see them when we get to heaven. And so for that reason, I don't think this is a morning for us to sit smugly and judge this couple. I think what we better do is fearfully learn some lessons from this couple. So I want to give you five. We had to delete some. There's more. And you can go home and think of others. You read the text a few times. I can't believe Jeff didn't say that one. Well, okay. You want me to preach longer? Let's hold it to five. Number one. Number one. Hey, we're missing it if we miss this. This, this is so obvious. Real simple. Write it down. People may not know when you lie, but God does. That's so simple. Just, just kind of force that into your mind. Hey, they, they don't know if I'm lying or not, but God sure does. And God hates it. He despises it. So what I want to invite you to do, if you know that lying tends to be part of, it's one of your weaknesses, it's one of your besetting sins, why don't you, and if, if there's a chance, you're one of these people, it's like you lie so frequently, so often, you just slide into it and you don't even notice it until it's like the really big ones where you actually, your palms do get sweaty. If that's you, would you just, like right now, just pray to the Lord, Lord, would you just start pointing out every time I lie or I'm about to lie and it's just so quickly and just really convict me over it? Number two, what we learn from verse number three, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So here's what we learned. Demonic forces are real. This was Satan, I believe. I take it literal. The one Satan. He's one person, one place. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's one person. I believe actual Lucifer Satan tempted this couple trying to infiltrate the church. There's 8 billion people in the world. I don't know if I've ever encountered actual Satan, but I know he is over a whole army and legions and legions of demonic forces. Here's my point. Demonic forces cannot possess the bodies of Christians, but they can influence our minds. You need to know that. They can influence our minds. 
I think it was Wearsby who pointed out, we need to remember that all the warnings in Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare, that's not written for unsaved people. That's for us. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. We're the, one. the world doesn't wrestle with spiritual wickedness. We are in this fight. So Jeff, if they can't possess our bodies, and what I don't know how they do it. All I know is they can foist things in your mind. And it's like, if you've ever just wondered, like, where in the world did that come from? That might be then. It might be you, but it might be then. So quick takeaway. Listen, don't ever just assume that everything you hear or everything that you think, like, I have this thought, it must be from God. Be careful. Don't just run with it automatic. Don't just assume everything I ever say up here is automatic from the Lord. You need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. Does it match the Word of God? People, listen to me, please. All the books you read, all the podcasts, all the programs, that's fine. But if, you're, if you just go in assuming everything this person says is truth, you can get yourself in big. God uses people to teach us his truth. And Satan will also use religious people to teach his truth. Be careful. Don't assume every thought that I have is from God. You need to weigh the spirits. Quickly, leave Acts for a moment. Go back to Matthew. So we're going to finish with a flurry here. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. want to go there. Here's the third takeaway. Number one, they may not know you're lying, but God always does. Number two, be careful. Demonic forces can actually influence your thinking. That's just clear from Scripture. Look at Matthew 6, verse number one. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness. We got we to feel this this morning. This is important. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. In order to be seen. So the motive is in order to be seen by them. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. He says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he's, hey, Christ, if you listen. When you're about to do acts of righteousness. These are great things. This is righteousness. Be careful and make sure in your heart that you're not doing this so that or in hopes that somebody else will find out that you're doing it. Be careful. Beware is the word the Lord uses. And then he gives three examples of righteous acts that are especially dangerous. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy. He assumes when you give, you're going to give to the needy. When you do that, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. That they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Write this thought. Acts of righteousness actually become sinful. When they're done to be seen by other people. That's an amazing thought. Acts of righteousness can become sinful if I'm doing it to be seen. And you may hear that and go back and forth and say, wow, this sounds very dangerous. Yes, Jesus uses the word beware. It's like take caution, take heed. Listen, beware, danger is near. What danger? You're about to give to the needy. Yeah, I'm just going to give to the needy. Be careful, check your heart, make sure you're not doing it so that other people will praise you for it. He then talks about prayer in the next verses, and then he talks about fasting. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. If no one knew except God, would you still give? 
If no one else is going to know that you give, would you still give? If no one else knows that you pray, when you pray and how much you pray, no one ever knows, would you still pray? I hope you'd be like, well, of course I'm going to still pray. I'm talking to God. I don't care what others know. When you fast, that's, that's the one we really want everybody to know. Hey, pray for me. I'm fasting. And I know you may have a partner, and you're in the partner now, and you may have to tell your spouse, they do the cooking, like, hey, letting you know, two days from now, be just you. Just cook for yourself. I get that. But if we're not careful, we've got to slip in and make sure it comes out at work and to other people in church. And it's like, no. Again, I'm not preaching on fasting. You've got to keep moving. Number four. Clear takeaways. Acts chapter 5 illustrates that we have a need to live with a clean conscience. We have a need to live with a clean conscience. This is important. This is the one I probably will struggle to get across the most. They couldn't have been living with a clean conscience. But we need to live with a clean conscience. If you have your Bible and you want to follow it, we'll be on the screen in a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. So we need to live with a clean conscience. Hey guys, listen. Let me just talk just for a second. I'm going to try to hopefully make this clear. I believe that one of the ways that we can have mental hygiene is to employ spiritual disciplines. And there are certain spiritual disciplines, if we will employ them, they have built-in checkpoints that will not allow a dirty, guilty, bruised conscience. They just won't allow it. I believe that one of those is regular, now hear it, regular, engaged, and responsive private reading of the Bible. And if you've got your checklist, and like I read my three chapters, I'm going to read through the whole Bible, and five minutes later you're clueless what you read, I'm not talking about you. You are not going to get anything out of that. You are conquering a to-do list. What I'm saying is if you'll slow down and read your Bible in an engaged way, James says it's like a mirror, and it shows us for who we are. And we are to be hearers of the Word, but don't just be hearers, be doers. And so that's why I say... Engaged reading and responsive reading, like, wow, the Bible is convicting me, and I need to change. I, I believe that's a built-in fix to a guilty conscience. But the other is right here in Hebrews. This is important. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's that idea of praying in Jesus' name. By the new, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. It's what we talked about his death on the cross last week. This is how, now we don't look to a high priest to go into the holy of holies in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. No, we go to the real holy of holies where God's throne is. How do we go? We go through the broken flesh of Christ and because we're washed with the blood of Christ. How are we to go? With confidence. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now hear me. 
When we pray, if it's real, the way we're supposed to approach God is with confidence, assurance, faith. Even the word that starts with letter B in Hebrews. Boldness. Boldness. Okay. But if you think for a moment, ah, I can just live with known sin. I can swim in pornography, get drunk some, commit fornication, blaspheme the name of the Lord, and now I'm ready to get some prayers answered. So I'm just going to real quick read Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. I'm not supposed to have any guilty conscience, and I'm supposed to have assurance and confidence and boldness. And so here I come, Lord. You've got to listen to me. No, you've got another thought coming. You're abusing the Scriptures. What this is talking about is what should happen is a cycle. If when you pray, if you really talk to God and you sense His presence, and then you have known sin in your life, and then now you're coming to talk to the Lord, here's what's going to happen. I'll tell you this from experience. There's distance. There's coldness. Oh, Jeff, just override that. Just read the verses and just go on anyway. Don't worry about sin in your life. No. What is the sin? Oh, that. That's cause. When the sin is revealed, forsake the sin. Claim 1 John 1, 9. We're supposed to take out the spiritual garbage daily. You take the spiritual garbage out by responding to the Word of God when you read, and you take the spiritual garbage out when you hear the word, when you go to the Lord in prayer, and He's like, "What's the coldness here?" Or, "Wow, I know what it is. Who am I kidding? You know, I'm. You know full well." Do you have any spiritual garbage in your life this morning? Anybody here? Don't raise your hand. How long has it been building? Been collecting it in your life for quite a while. Do you know when we come to church, this is one of the spiritual disciplines that God wants to use. When we put ourselves under the teaching and the preaching and the truth of the Word of God, it should be cleansing us so that, like, man, I just can't come. And like, if I don't get right with the Lord through the week, I'm, I got to get right with the Lord here. It's like, man, your Word is just like pounding me. Could you just imagine hearing a message this morning and just get up and walk out with known sin? A Christian. I would struggle with that. Then lastly, can we have Deuteronomy? 23. Look at Deuteronomy 23. I would be doing you a disservice if I did not include this in the clear takeaways. Do you see that? Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Say what? If you make a vow... God expects you to pay it. What if I don't make the vow? Then you're not guilty of sin. Sounds like I don't need to be making vows. Well, it's up to you. Verse 23, you shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Write it down. We must fulfill our vows to the Lord. So what I would say... Please don't make flippant vows to the Lord. I'm not going to say don't ever make vows to the Lord. I would say don't swear. Obviously don't swear. But I'm not going to tell you don't make. Paul is going to make a vow. Paul makes vows in in the book of Acts. What I'm going to say is don't make vows flippantly. And when you do, fulfill them quickly and completely. So here's my final thought this morning. Have you, you, you. Have you, at any, you watching right now, have you in your past 
promised God that you would give him something. Maybe a one-time thing or a steady thing or a service. God, I will do this service for you, but you haven't followed through on it. And you forgot about it. You forgot. I'm not talking to most of you right now. I might be talking to one person this morning and you're sitting there like, oh, crud. I told the Lord that if this ever happens, that I would do this. Or if he would cause this, I would do that. Or if I ever reached the point in my life where I got promoted to this or this title, that I would. And I haven't done it. The Lord sees you as guilty. He expects you to pay that vow. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just before I pray, do you need in any way, is there anything in you, you just need to talk to the Lord God? You just need to tell Him, God, I've been guilty of pride. Maybe it was one of those forms. We read like a dozen. Maybe one of those things or two is like, wow. God, and you've seen it the whole time. You know I am prone to be proud. Please reveal it. Help me forsake it. Do you need to, anybody, just you and the Lord right now, greed is greed. Does that have a powerful hold over you? Does hypocrisy, it's like you've pretended to be something that you're not. Just acting, faking it. Care a lot about what other people think. And I think a big one. You've been lying. Have you been lying? You need to forsake it. Ask the Lord to reveal it. How is your conscience? Is there a vow that you've made? You're like, wow, it's time. Perhaps you even forgot about it, but it's time. Not even saying make a new vow on top of the old. I'm just saying, just do it. Just do it by God's grace. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we thank you for all parts of the Word of God. Thank you for how they challenge us. Even chapters like this that have a melancholy tone to them, Lord, we thank you that we can learn. And I pray that today is a day that we've been challenged to live pure, to live with a reverential awe of your presence, your Holy Spirit within us. But Lord, let us also have a healthy, healthy fear of your displeasure and of your discipline, knowing that you do discipline your children. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll make grace for you a pure church as we get ready to walk out right here in moments. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.